Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Nick Bradley here again, and I'm glad you're tuning in to another episode because today I'm very pleased to be bringing back the Entrepreneur in Focus series. So the last couple of weeks, we've had quite a few interviews um, on the show, and I've been bringing in I think more specialists, just to give you a rounded view of some of the the different components of scale. So today, slightly different context because I think it's good to learn from entrepreneurs who are going through the journey. In some cases, the struggle, uh, the reasons why we all want to become entrepreneurs in many ways is because the challenges and the opportunities certainly make you feel alive. So I'm really, really pleased this week to bring you a gentleman by the name of Tom Mercer, who is the founder of Mama Foods. Now, Mama Foods is a brand that launched in the UK a number of years back. I'll let Tom go into that on the show today. And uh, starting to make waves internationally as well now. But the reason I wanted to have um, Tom on the show is because it's, it's sometimes the things that aren't as obvious or the things that aren't said that can be the most impactful. And Tom is, certainly out of all the entrepreneurs I've interviewed of late, he's one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. And what you'll get a sense of today when he tells you about his story and his journey is just how focused and in some cases resilient he is on getting to where he has got to in his business. Now, I won't go into the detail in the intro about what exactly Mama does. He'll get right into that. But let me just say this, that he started selling his products from a converted filing cabinet, literally to sort of hungry London commuters at train stations. And, you know, getting up at two in the morning to prepare the various foods himself before taking this filing cabinet down to down to these stations. And he did that for years. And from that, which you know sounds like hard work to me, from that he's grown a, a really impressive business, which is just doing, as I said, some great things. So so I hope you enjoyed this episode with Tom. You're gonna learn a lot. He's also had to overcome some pretty serious personal um, situations as well. And he talks about that again with a lot of a lot of um, humbleness. So, you know, listen to that. And what I want you to really get out of this is that it doesn't really matter what happens to you sometimes in life. It's what you do around that if you're committed to it. And as I always say, there's no failure. There's only results. And you only ever fail if you stop and you give up. And Tom has definitely not done that. And he certainly is reaping the rewards for his efforts now. So that's it. Without further ado, welcome back to the Entrepreneur in Focus series and Tom Mercer. Alrighty, so today I am delighted to welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast, Tom Mercer. 
Now, Tom is joining us in the Entrepreneur in Focus series, which I've been doing quite a lot over the recent months and has certainly been well received by all of you. So today um, I introduced Tom. Now, Tom's got a fascinating story. He is the founder of a business called MoMA, which essentially is a whole heap of fantastic cereal products, uh, porridges. I'm gonna let him introduce all those bits and pieces, but the interesting thing about his story is he started this business from a stall, um, literally in a, in a train station in London, isn't that correct? Tom? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which was made from a converted filing cabinet? Yeah, a wide draw Bisley filing cabinet on wheels. Yeah. Fantastic. <clears throat> and now you've obviously turned this into an amazing brand here in the UK. We can talk about whether that's global, all that sort of stuff as we get into it today, but welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Great, thanks very much for having me on, Nick. Great, um, so let, let's start with kind of your journey. So firstly, kind of how you got to where you are, explain to everyone um, the listeners about the business yeah. and about you, um, how did this all happen? So the way, the kind of the, the brief in a nutshell story of, uh, of MoMA is, so I'm a farmer's son from Staffordshire, came down to London after uni, was working as a management consultant, um, really wanted to do my own business. I was pretty mediocre at consultancy and um, <laughs> okay. always, always wanted to do my own thing, always thought I would do. Um, spent a lot of time kind of wandering around thinking, thinking what my big idea was. And it struck me that there was a real gap in the breakfast market. I used to walk over Waterloo Bridge to work every day uh, with, and in it, if I'd had my breakfast, um, I had a really productive morning. If I didn't have my breakfast, then kind of halfway through the morning, it was just a really unproductive morning. Um, so I started blending oats with yogurt and fruit, uh, pouring it into a water bottle and walking over Waterloo Bridge. Having so this is your own concoction? It's my own concoction, like an oat smoothie in the morning. Okay. Uh, and it, it made a massive difference. You know, it's, um, everyone knows that oats and porridge-based things, uh, or porridge-based things and oats really fill you up. So. Um, that really made a difference to my mornings in the, uh, to my mornings going to work in Waterloo. Um, so I decided what I wanted to do was a healthy filling grab and go breakfast. Um, and I thought if I'm selling breakfast, let's just sell it in places that are busy at breakfast time. So the idea was to set up a stall uh, on people's way to work um, where they could buy breakfast from us. And, and this stall was London Bridge? Station, the first store was Waterloo East train station. Okay, so not uh, too far from where we are today. No, not too far, yeah. <laughs> so once I'd had that idea of, of setting up uh, breakfast for people, I, I did the normal consultancy route. So I did my, uh, my online surveys, kind of looked at uh, Mintel reports. I sent a survey monkey email out to people saying, what, asking them what their breakfast eating habits were, what was important to them, um, and something that was tasty, healthy, filling and convenient. Those were the key things that were really important to people. So that was my mission, set a, a tasty, healthy, filling breakfast company up. And so um, this came, just, just to step back a bit because there's quite a lot of interesting points you make. So firstly, there was a thing about you wanted this. <laughs> so there was a bit about, I mean, in the mornings, getting your energy yeah. levels and hunger. But how did you bridge the consultancy career to this idea? Were you thinking at the time, I want to try and do something more entrepreneurial? And this just came to you as you were kind of thinking that, or was it more more like actually I they, they were independent, but they obviously came together and you started to create a business. It was definitely me thinking, I want to do my own business. Yeah. What do I do? And then yeah, it did strike me that actually there's a gap in a, a gap in the breakfast market. You know, from my personal experience of walking to work, and there wasn't really anything in terms of grab and go breakfast at the time. There was croissants and muffins in coffee shop, but nothing more substantial than that for people to grab on their way to and work. When, when did you exactly <coughs> found MoMA? 
we set up in August 2005 was when yeah. we kind of officially set the company up. We uh, that was when we incorporated. February 2006 is when we first started trading. Right. Okay. So it's been so it's been a good length of time now. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So let's yeah. get into the journey because because yeah. one of the things with the with the Entrepreneur in Focus series, and this is the reason why I wanted to do it is that there are some similarities usually between an entrepreneur's journey when they're doing from startup to scale up and all that, but there's yeah. also some very interesting nuances. So, yeah. so you've already just explained to some extent the beginning, and that's uh -huh. you know, quite a good sort of you know, spark of an idea. What's been probably the biggest challenge over the last decade then from that idea to where you are today? And maybe explain a little bit about where you are today for the listeners as well. Yeah, sure. So, so we launched with a. I'll talk you through a little bit of what we've done and where we've got to. And there've been a couple of pivots along the way that's kind of really kind of encapsulates the challenges that we've had. So we launched with a stall in Waterloo train station, which was like you said, a filing cabinet on wheels with branding on the outside. I love that. <laughs> that's that's cool. Yeah, no, it's pretty pretty basic back in the day. So I was 27 years old back then. Um, we were making everything by hand in a railway arch in Deptford. So we used to start work at half past two in the morning, uh, make the products, load the products into the stalls, put the stalls in a van, drive it to the train station, and then start selling breakfasts. Um, we got up to nine stalls in London train stations, in all the big train stations in London, uh, selling breakfast to commuters. So porridge, birch muesli, oat smoothies, that was our, our main trade. Um, after six years, we moved away from the stalls in the train stations and focused purely on our product. Okay. Um, so that was kind of our first big pivot was going away from this direct consumer retail model, which was really exciting, um, but ultimately wasn't profitable. Um, was that we, more about brand awareness at the time and being a bit more disruptive? It, it was, and that was always the intention, right. was to set up these stalls and train stations to really grow brand awareness and then move into supermarkets and so on. But I was really green, really naive, 26 when I left my old job um, and thought, you know, that would be an easy thing to do. I didn't know much about kind of food technology and the process processes behind it. So our product to start with had a one day shelf life and then two days, then five days, then eight days. So we had to make, we had to learn a lot on the job in terms of taking a product that was great to sell on a daily basis at a stall in a train station to something that we could then sell in supermarkets. Were you, so, were you going back to the beginning, were you getting up at like three in the morning and making these products and then turning up to the, the filing cabinet? Yeah, at the, the very beginning, yeah, we used to get up at quarter to two in the morning. Quarter to and, two. Yeah, start work half two and then get to stations and sell it. Um, it did change kind of after the first few months, um, but um, I remember Sunday evenings were the worst because I had to go down to New Covent Garden Market to buy all the fruit. So that'd be a half 12, half 12 in the morning start. So well, the um, grind and hustle of that is unbelievable. So you were literally yeah. for a few months, I mean, you must be getting no sleep. Yeah, it was, it was, no, it was, it was, it was really brutal actually. The, um, I used to drive the van as well and I'd, I'd get to traffic lights and I had to put it into, into neutral, otherwise I'd nod off at the wheel and kind of drive off. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was really tough in the early days actually, particularly the first few months. I remember kind of feeling like I'd been beaten for those first few months, but it was, so what, it was what kept super you going? exciting. So what, I mean, if you think about that, so what was the, there must be something that was driving you to, to make this go past that point, because that doesn't sound sustainable. What, what was driving you to keep going at that point? You know, I was, I was really, really passionate about setting up my own thing. I thought we got some brilliant products and I, was, I loved the fact that I was rolling my sleeves up and really getting stuck into something operational, having been uh, at Bain, the consultancy firm, for, for three years. Um, I loved actually running my own thing. Um, I had loads of energy, kind of I was, I was 26, 20, 27 years old when we launched the business. Uh, and just a real desire to, to make it work and not be kind of beaten by anything. Um, and I do think that's a little bit of naivety from the food manufacturing point of view 
kind of helps actually kind of when you're starting up a business I think one of the uh, the conflicts is the older you are the more experience you've got and the more chances you've got of working but the younger you are the less risks there are of setting up a business so and I think that kind of that youthful naivety actually helps and helps get some businesses off the ground that would never have been done otherwise. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty tough in the early days. But what kept me going is a a constant optimism and belief that we would make it work. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So again, when I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs on the show and in otherwise, that vision, if you like, and in some cases, self belief, dogged determination to make it work is a consistent characteristic. Mm. Um, and I think it's a trait that actually sits with most entrepreneurs. There's a lot of people yeah. who try things and then give up quite early because there's a challenge. Yeah, sounds like you've had more challenges than just the early starts in the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> we have. And you know, like I said, we pivoted away from the stalls in the train stations, and we were focusing on Birch Muesli. Uh, and then, kind of after a few years with Birch Muesli, which is a, a chilled yogurt oat and fruit product, which is a brilliant product, but kind of had limited potential within supermarkets, which is a branded food product, a non-impulse food product. Is kind of your best shot really is in, is in UK supermarkets so and then we pivoted towards porridge uh, and now we're starting to look at other things as well as porridge so for example we're going into the dairy alternatives category so introducing oat milk um, so there have been quite a few pivots along the journey um, going back to what you were saying about the determination and doggedness um, that's definitely a trait with entrepreneurs and um, I think it's, it's definitely something I have quite strongly um, which I think can be a benefit, but it can also hold people back as well. And it's definitely been a weakness for me as well. So I think having that balance of um, of passion and doggedness, but also objectivity and realism about what you're doing is, is really important. And sometimes the passion can, can blur your objectivity and your rational viewpoint. So I think it's really important to know when to say, uh, I'm putting all my energy into this, I'm putting all my passion, which is really important if you're trying to get something off the, off the ground. Also, you need to have that objectivity to say, actually, this isn't working, or we need to tweak this, or we need to pivot a little bit and actually adapt and change where we're going in order to make it, make it successful. And it took me too long to start with, with the Birch Muesli, to make that first pivot in the business. So, and I think having that headspace uh, to be able to stand back and see the bigger picture and the objectivity to say, actually, you know what, it's not all about just working harder and plowing on harder and more determined. Sometimes you have to say, this isn't working, let's move on to something different or let's adapt what we're doing. And I think a lot of the successful entrepreneurs, I'm sure all of the successful entrepreneurs out there have kind of had lots of pivots in their career and changes of direction to find the way forward that works. Yeah, I mean, I often say, but, you know, you only fail, if you like, if you want to use that word, when you stop trying or you give up. And there's always going to be these roadblocks. And most people, most people who are not doing the stuff that we're talking about on this episode today and the podcast in general, tend to find a challenge that hits them and then they, as I said, they go backwards or they stop. Yeah. And that's the only point where you fail. But at what point, I mean, so obviously there was a whole heap of hard graft in the beginning. At what point did you think, you know what, I've absolutely got something here? versus that pull where you might have been thinking, you know what, this is really hard, I'm not sure if this is going to work. Was there something that happened along that time or were you just so determined, you know what, you thought, you know what, this is not going to fail no matter what, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get to what it needs to be. 
It's probably more the latter, which I, th I don't think is always the right, I don't think is the right approach for people to have. I think you say you need to have that objectivity, but whenever kind of we've got to a point that kind of one element of the business um, hasn't been working, there's been another element that's come along or kind of we've pivoted or we've kind of looked at ways around it and actually, actually this side of the business is really working. So, you know, our stalls were struggling, but kind of the Birch Muesli had loads of potential. Then the Birch Muesli, um, Butcher Muesli is still a brilliant product and it, it sells well, but it's um, it's got a limit, it's more of a niche on the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And then kind of porridge came along and we started really pushing the porridge and that's been behind the growth in the last five years. And how do you um, know when to pivot then? I mean, what's the signs that you're getting? Are you, are you measuring stuff or is it is it just more in, um, insightful or more instinctive? Um, a blend of the two, I think. Um, I think a lot of it is insightful and instinctive and just having those moments and a lot of it comes to me when I'm, I'm walking really and I've got the time to myself to kind of really think about where I think the market's going, where I think the future of our business could be going and like kind of brainstorm with myself really about, you know, this might not be working so well, so how could we adapt it and how does that fit in with kind of the changing landscape of the marketplace? Um, if you've got sol the right solid metrics in your business to be able to um, monitor business performance so for example in our in our industry rate of sales so how many units per product line per store per week that you're selling um, that enables you to see in black and white how you're actually performing without it kind of getting clouded by different marketing activity you're doing or promotions or new listings you're getting you know how is the base performance of the business doing and that should give you some solid indicators of whether something's doing well uh, whether it's struggling or whether you've you need to make some changes in order to be able to get it on the right footing. So I'd say a blend of the two. Um, it's probably been a little bit more intuition and hopefully a bit of vision over the over the past that's kind of made, made, made me make those pivots in the business. Because as you're speaking, I'm reflecting back to your what, what I perceive as your Bain career, your consultancy career, and there must have been some learnings from that that you introduced at certain points. I mean, the metrics thing, just to unpack that, <coughs> excuse me for a minute or so, um, I... It's the first thing I start with. Well, actually, it's the second thing I, I talk about after vision and mission. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got, to have, you've got to know where you are today, and then you've got to have yeah. an understanding about where you want to achieve. At what point did you start to introduce that? Was that always part of your thinking in the business, or did you think, actually, as I'm now starting to become bigger and scaling up, that I now need to have more measures and more metrics in the business? Yeah, no, look, we've, we've always had those measures and metrics in place. We've always had our weekly sales reports. Kind of, it was actually almost easier when you're smaller because you can analyse individual sales and produce ind graphs for individual stores within a supermarket chain on how it's performing. And the less stores you're in, the easier that is to do because it's yeah. a very kind of manual, labour-intensive process. You can say, actually, Putney Waitrose isn't selling as much as they should do. We go down there, do some sampling, rearrange the shelves, that sort of thing, and then all of a sudden it does better. Um, so... Uh, having that kind of focus kind of really, really helps. I do think it's something that as we get bigger, we need to be uh, really maintain the discipline on that reporting, not to the same level of detail, because it's impossible when you're selling in thousands of supermarkets, but um, to make sure you're really looking at that base rate of sale, which is, is the main thing in our industry. And sometimes that discipline has slipped, which is, which is yeah, an error, but it's something kind of we're on top of again now. You're a very humble guy, Tom. <laughs> There's a few things you're weaving into the conversation, which is just interesting. I want, I want to kind of just delve into those if that's cool. So <laughs> you've got this selling on a stall, hustling, all this, and then you've yeah. you know, mentioned thousands of retail outlets and Waitrose and in the UK yeah. for, for our US audience. That's yeah. a, a big, a very big and successful um, supermarket retail chain. At what point did all this come together? Did you get a couple of breaks? There must have been some points where you know people yeah, saw you sure. and then said, let's get this into more mainstream retail, et cetera. 
Well, it was all kind of like, so the stalls in the train station, as I said, ultimately they weren't a profitable business model. We didn't have water or electric. We couldn't sell coffee. So as a retail concept, they were never going to be uh, kind of a sustainable business. But in terms of showcasing our products, they were great. So when it came to then pitching to supermarkets, we'd already got a, a trading track record of these stalls in train stations, which was really interesting, super entrepreneurial. People loved that story. Uh, and we got a brilliant product as well. So the um, so we first started selling into, into offices. People would go to the person who ran the canteen in their office. These were big offices in London, banks and consultancy firms and law firms and would say, you know, we want this product we bought in London Bridge or Waterloo. Can we get it into our offices? So we did that. Um, and then we started to pitch to the supermarkets. So our first supermarket was was Waitrose. They were just launching their first little Waitrose store, uh, so it fitted really well. Um, it was Trinity Square in Nottingham, so we got up into there. And again, I was was there myself doing sampling a lot, kind of. And when was consumers. this uh, approximately? Two thousand nine. Okay. So, yeah. So that's a while back. Yeah, three years after we started, but <laughs> ten okay. years ago from now. Yeah. Um, and then it got, and Birchie Music was really on trend, particularly back then, um, and. We then got into Sainsbury's and Tesco uh, and Ocado. Uh, we also got into Virgin Atlantic, so we had some really good business with Virgin Atlantic. We then started trading with British Airways, so we were on British Airways for about five years before. They now were you doing do Virgin Atlantic and British Airways at the same time? Uh, yeah, for a period. That's that was cool. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't normally happen. Yeah. The airline okay. contracts you can kind of win them easily and and lose them easily as well. They kind of have a standard rotation on their on on their business. So. Um, yeah, airline business has been has been pretty good over the years. Um, all the, a lot of British Airways stuff is all they now outsource that to M and S. You have to buy on the short haul flights. You buy M and S food, so that bit of business has gone. And there's been a few others we've had over the years. We've um, supplied porridge to Qatar and Emirates Airlines for their crew, um, which is a random bit of business, but was was brilliant while it lasted. Um, My wife was a yeah. flight attendant on Emirates for about twelve years. Oh, We're really? going back a while now, yeah, yeah, so yeah. she might have experienced that. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was fantastic when it arrived. So the yeah, the airline stuff can be quite hit and miss. Um, it's great when you get it. Um, we've got some solid customers now. Well, our, main, our main customer is EasyJet, so uh, we do about five thousand porridges a week on EasyJet, uh, which is great business for us. But we put a lot of effort in from our side as well, and we really adapt our offering and innovate so we can really deliver what they want. Um, so we sell sachets at the moment that they then decant into pots, so it kind of works out more cost-effective for them, they get more choice for their consumers, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, airline industry's been good, but in terms of measuring our base business, it's about what we do in the food service sector and what we do in supermarkets. That's kind of the main measure of how our product is performing on the marketplace. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the sort of startup to scale up journey because you're kind of obviously yeah. in the scale up now from everything you're saying. Um, we can kind of get into the definitions, but um, I often say to people there are three types of, uh, let's say, founder or mm -hmm. business leader. You've got the artist, you've got the entrepreneur, and you've got the leader in general. And mm -hmm. just a quick definition for everybody um, the artist is normally the product creator, the innovator. The entrepreneur is usually the person who's best at selling, pitching, commercial, and the leader is usually like a general manager who runs the day-to-day -day operations. You could argue that they are more like a COO than a CEO. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, when you start a business, I always say you've got to be all three, but you naturally come become one, if you like, over time as you scale. So as you're talking, I'm just trying to work it out. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a whole heap of the ranges coming here. Do you, do you naturally align with one of those type of personas? Is there one that you gravitate towards the most? Or do you feel you are actually really can jump between all of them quite easily? Yeah, no, I definitely think I have a bit of all three, but I suppose I gravitate more to the first, to kind yeah. of the innovator. That's that's the bit I really enjoy, the bit that gets me really excited. You know, I'll kind of, um, 
you know, someone sent me an email today on the train. Uh, it's talking about kind of, uh, it's really high on the supermarket agenda at the moment to cut down on packaging waste and yeah. um, environmental waste. So they're looking at, you know, should we be doing different formats of pots, that sort of stuff. So then I'll kind of fire an email back to the guys saying, you know, we should be looking at this. And I'm sure it does... Uh, does annoy people a bit when I kind of come up with these random ideas and just drop them in there. But um, but yeah, that's that's what I really like is kind of innovating and disrupting on the marketplace. Um, I love the sales process when I can get into it. Actually, um, there's nothing better than somebody who's really passionate about a product pitching it because um, passion. And you do all the pitching yourself? No, no, I don't actually okay. um, because we, you know, as the business has grown, that's been um, an area that you know I'm not in charge of the sales process anymore. I'm or more look after kind of operations and finance and kind of oversee or half oversee the product development side of things. But in terms of, in terms of, because I'm. I suppose I have a natural strength, I guess, in the ops and finance, um, and I can do that side of things. I think it's important for me to handle, have a handle on the finances in the business. But do you have a, a finance director or someone, or is it literally uh, no? Your... So I'm the finance director. I so say we do have right. a part-time accountant who would put the books together and put together the monthly accounts. But then I'll go through it and reconcile all the figures and so on. So it is quite. I think I don't massively enjoy it actually, but it's because um, it's it's routine stuff. But it's it's not always that easy, and it's important. I think for me to have a handle on that side of things. Mm, interesting. A the, lot of a lot of it, that's a a rarity. In, in some cases, when we're talking about the innovator, the um, the artists, mm. you know, I can see that from the conversation that you've definitely had that. But then to pivot into again something which is more analytical, less creative, but important yeah. is quite a unique skill. Because I always say, and you, you'll I'm sure you agree with this, that if you're not managing cash flow in the business, if you're not managing mm. the metrics, as we spoke about, you know, a few minutes yeah. ago, then actually you can get yourself into trouble quite quickly, particularly when you're on that sort of scale up journey. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it's you know it has been really important for us to kind of keep on top of those sort of things. You know, back in the early days, cash flow was really tight. You know, and there'd be you know days you'd be not paying people for a couple of days because you'd want to get that that check in from somebody first, which is really tough place to be. Kind of managing cash flow is is hard work because not only is you are you trying to get the business operating effectively to be able to generate more cash, but you're also spending a lot of your time managing that cash flow and chasing people for payments and kind of delaying payments. So anyway, all of that is a long time ago, kind of. Uh, no, but, it's ca- part, but ca- it is part flow. of the journey. It's important. It's, it's, to, part, it's part of the journey. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a long way past that now, um, but it's um, but it's tough and it's doubly tough because, because you're spending your time managing a process, um, you know, managing those money in versus money out rather yeah. than just getting on with running the business and generating that income and make it a more efficient business so um but yeah in answer to your question kind of going back a little bit yeah i love the product innovation i love selling actually when I, when i do get in front of somebody um there's a lot of uh, admin that goes with that as well though and there can be quite a lot of frustrations and uh, as i say kind of i suppose a strength i bring is the is is the ops and finance which is why i've that's kind of within my functional remit. So when you were going for that, again, we'll jump back a bit just to sort of say how you, where you are. Because yeah. where you are now, you know, we'll get into the kind of what's next because I'd like to, I think it'd be really interesting for people. But who was your first employee back back in the day? The first person you brought in, it might, was it a partner or was it just someone you brought in to help do admin? Was it What was that? Uh, yeah, so I did have a business partner right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, don't anymore. She's still a partner and, and shareholder in the business, a director and shareholder in the business. Um, and as I say, it was very kind of hands-on early days. Um, the very first employee we had um, outside of uh, Amy, who's my business partner, the um, it's a guy called Campbell Starr. He was um, a chef, and he used to work in a local restaurant. And he'd finish work at about like 
one o'clock in the morning, and then he'd come to us, and it'd be his way of de-stressing, was kind of making the granola and kind of helping. Well, literally, sort of batching stuff up, ready to go to the train station. Yeah, ready to go to the train station. So he was, he was, a, he was a great guy actually, and he really helped us kind of back in the beginning. He was like, Tom, you can't use a, a kind of a, a domestic smoothie blender. You've really got to get one of these handheld blenders and like really basic stuff. Um, but he was, he was, <laughs> he was kind of a, a wise, uh, a wise person to have on board, kind of back in the early I days. I can imagine at two in the morning, you really got some good conversations. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And then we recruited a lot of guys from the job centre in Deptford because uh, it got, oh. got became a very, uh, it was very quickly a very manual process in the kitchen. Um, was that was that deliberately? And again, for listeners outside of the UK, that's obviously people who are. You know, sometimes they come from challenges and they're trying mm. to find employment. Mm. Um, mm. Was that a deliberate thing you did to actually give people a bit of an opportunity, or was it just that that was uh, where there was a uh, bo- both actually both? Yeah, it was to give people an opportunity, and they were they were they were great guys and girls that we got from there. Um, Depth has changed a little bit now; it's become uh, a little bit trendier. The job centre is now a pub called the Job Centre. The um, so it's, 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 it's <laughs> we are in a we're recording yeah. this from a, a pretty cool part of London for anyone who's interested, and yeah. I'm actually sitting in in the offices here where it looks like there's a lot of things going on including including some production and storage and other bits and pieces so it's, it's the authenticity of this is quite quite entertaining yeah no, it, is, it is quite fun down here yeah. yeah yeah okay so so obviously brought those people in and in terms of how you made the decision about how you structured things and mm. brought in some processes and started to kind of you know when you when you're building teams i think it's one of the biggest challenges of scale up how did yeah. you think about that and how did you start to to activate that yeah it's a really interesting so when I first started the business, you know, it was all about the excitement and the energy and innovation and doing everything by the seat of our pants, um, which was really exciting. But you do soon realise that actually kind of the backbone of any business is the operations, it's the boring stuff. You know, it's making sure um, that things are delivered on time, that you've got a, a process for ordering your stock for kind of when people are going to turn up to work, a good rotor for people that are walking on the stalls in the train stations. So... Yeah, I soon realised that actually kind of you need that really strong operational backbone in a business. It's not all about creative ideas and passion selling the product. Without the products turning up on time and in good condition, then you've not really got a business. So, um, yeah, so right from kind of the early days did start to kind of put those processes in place. You've kind of got this blend of trying to get a slick operational business the passion of trying to sell this entrepreneurial startup and then kind of the innovation and also the just the sheer hard work behind it and the number of hours that's going into kind of a really new project and getting a new venture off the ground. Yeah, I was going to say, and also there's a the cultural <coughs> element of that must be interesting because again, as I've walked in here today, I always get a sense of how important that dynamic is. At what point did you start to think about the culture that you wanted here? Was it deliberate or did it grow organically? I think the culture's just evolved organically, really. Um, and I know this was something I've kind of from some of your previous uh, interviews you've had. Kind of a lot more, a lot of people have looked at it very deliberately. Um, I suppose there has been a bit more kind of deliberate thought gone into it. But um, at the start, we had these stalls in the train stations. We had a lot of students working on the stalls. It was a very kind of young, energetic, kind of really friendly vibe because these were guys who were. You know, actors or actresses or students kind of work on the stalls trying to get a bit of extra money. They were kind of real extrovert, friendly people. Did you deliberately look for that type of individual? Uh, yeah, because okay. they were good at selling products yep. um, and they were friendly, which is kind of what we wanted. You know, our vibe was kind of a, a young, friendly, 
London innovative brand. Um, did, you, did you write any of this down in terms of, again, I'm just trying to guess, it's interesting because some people, they, they do, diff, there's different ways of doing it. There's no right, <coughs> right or wrong way. Sometimes people will sit down, they'll write down their mission, what they're trying to yeah. achieve, they'll write down their values and then they'll, you know, try and create that through the brands. Yeah. Some people just do it instinctively again. It's like, well, it just, of course we would only employ that type of yeah, individual yeah. because it makes sense to do so. I think you... Uh, I mean, we do have that all written down now, and it's, it's it's based a lot on those same things. It's kind of about knowledge around oats. It's about friendliness. It's uh, it's about enthusiasm. It's about passion. It's about hard work. Um, but back in the early days, I think you kind of go for particularly an entrepreneurial business, which is started through passion rather than objectively saying, I think there's a gap in the market right here. I mean, you know, whether it's something you're interested in or not. You know, this was a sector I was really interested in. I think a lot of the culture stems from the founder and mm-hmm. the person setting up the business. Yep. So you employ people that you like. Um, you like. I like people that are friendly and hardworking and have got a bit of spark about them, you know, and it's some, something you relate to as an individual because um, you want to be proud of your business and, you know, assuming you're proud of yourself and you like who you are as an individual, then you kind of want to employ people that, that, that you like and kind of represent your values, I think, and would sell things in the same way that you would like to sell them, which is kind of with, with passion and a smile and integrity around what you're doing. Okay. And, and you've got, I mean, how many people have you got employed in the business now? There's uh, there's 12 of us now in the business. Okay. Yeah, so we outsource all of our production. We didn't, obviously, right at the beginning, we did it all in-house, and then we started outsourcing bits, and then after six years, we outsourced everything. So we work with five different manufacturers in the UK. In terms of head office, the 12 of us here, it's um, sales, marketing, product development, and then we got operations in terms of coordinating those different manufacturers that we work with. Got it. And, what's, and, and as you think about what's next and, and the journey of where you are today, yeah. what, what does that start to look like? Again, stuff you can share, but it's more about yeah. you know, the vision. The vision's obviously working. Where does yeah. it go? Does it start to go more international or is it more about getting more penetration in the UK? What does that look like? So I think so. We did a bit of work, kind of last year, on really kind of consolidating our brand positioning, um, and it's all about being so it fits really well with their name, Mama, um, which stands for making oats more awesome. But it's, so um, it's all oat based, just to be clear. It's all oat based. So now it's kind of the Mama of all. So it's all about <laughs> we want to be the best oat based brand in any sector that's got oats or that we choose to be in globally. I take uh, it. Yeah, globally, internationally, yeah, yeah, cool. or in the universe. And the, um, um, so to kind of really... You might be able to get on a Virgin Intergalactic yes. at one point. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Having, been on the, having been on the flight, <laughs> hopefully we can go on that. The, um, yeah, having gone from being these stalls in train stations where the kind of the brand and the energy really spoke for itself to and focusing on birch muesli to then having porridge and now kind of going into the dairy alternative space and kind of doing some snacks as well, I wanted something that really consolidated it. So kind of that razor sharp focus on oats um, above breakfast. It used to be kind of more about breakfast, but about oats and kind of really being the mama of all, providing the best product that there is out there. So, um, so that's kind of been the focus on the brand. In terms of, in terms of where we're going going forward, um, I'm trying to get that that blend of passion for the brand and where we can take it and that kind of um, the excitedness about innovation mm-hmm. um, combined with uh, kind of a rational viewpoint on what we should be doing and the blend of um, targeting top line sales growth um, versus bottom line profit. So the two don't always go hand in hand and sometimes you, well, obviously if you, you spend more money you might be able to spend more on marketing and grow the business faster but that would be at the expense of bottom line profits at least in the short term. Um, so going forward, we'll probably have a, a dual strategy, really, in terms of the porridge side of our business, um, 
will probably focus more on generating some profit from that side of the business. That's okay. really the core of the so business. So that's, that's where you started, I take it, mainly? Uh, yes. We well, talked about, obviously, the different products when you had the store, but in terms of where you started to kind of, what was the first product that went into retail? The Birch Muesli was the first so product. Birch, okay. Yeah, Birch Muesli was the first product, but Porridge has been the one that's really worked for us. That's been kind of, that was the, the big kind of tipping point in terms of kind of Mama being a success as a business has really driven our growth over the last five years. We've been the fastest growing brand on the porridge market for the last two years in the UK. Um, so it's really driving strong growth, but profitable growth within the porridge going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be through mainly through UK, um, but also through kind of um, through kind of exporting as well. So, we're so really have you started the export journey yet? Yeah, we that... do about five percent of our business right. is, is exporting. Okay. Um, Bits of China, bits of the Middle East, uh, France, Austria, Switzerland. Um, we're actually looking at Australia as a as a key market. Actually, going forward, we're working with a very healthy um, lifestyle down there. Yeah, I think kind of <laughs> in, in terms of kind of eating habits, yeah. and uh, I think culturally, it's quite similar to the UK. Um, some slight differences. Kind of Aussies do a lot more. Drinking breakfasts was a big thing, or wasn't a big thing, was a, a big new innovation in the UK, which has kind of struggled a bit. Whereas I know in Australia, it's a lot bigger, but. Um, yeah, so definitely kind of looking at the Australian market quite quite seriously, but kind of want to drive porridge as a sustainable, profitable core bit of the business. You know, we're established on the market. I really want to consolidate that position on the market and grow. And we're currently number five on the UK market right. in terms of porridge brands. So if we doubled the size in the UK market, we'd be pretty much number two on and the how UK do you market. Do, how do you go about your planning? <clears throat> do you work in, in a prescriptive quarters or months or weeks? Or is there a way that you kind of have a, a system, if you like, which allows you to think about the end game being this and, and you've got a clear pathway to how you get there? Yeah, so we'll have, um, in terms of meetings and structuring the business, we'll have kind of weekly one-on-one meetings with uh, the line managers in the business. So I'll kind of have weekly meetings with a couple of guys in the business. Um, we'll have a team weekly meeting uh, and a team monthly meeting, um, but then quarterly as our main objective settings. That when we'll have our advisors here, we'll do a full report of everything that's been happening in the business, yeah. um, and and that's where we really set the strategy going forward for the subsequent three, six, twelve months in the business. Got it. Okay, and let's let's talk a little bit more about about you. I think mm-hmm. here in this sort of scene. So there's, I mean, obviously the business. You've done a great job. I'm, it's it's interesting for people. What I know from the feedback that I get, you're going to be getting quite a lot of people sort of trying to unpack what your method is because this is usually what happens. People can't say, "Wow, oh, that was really fascinating." How do they do that? And there's different parts. But you yourself, how do you um, manage yourself? So this is more about your mindset and skill set about, you know, obviously we know that you're driven, you've already yeah. articulated that, you're relatively relentless in terms of that, and you've got good vision and focus. But is there anything that you do for yourself to be able to kind of maintain your energy, maintain the momentum that you're driving? Um, so his, historically, um, not so much actually, and that's and I, and I, but this is kind of a real lesson for people actually, kind of, yeah, the, the, the drivenness and determinedness is, is, is not something I have a problem with, but as I mentioned before, um, it's not always, it's a double-edged sword sometimes, and you've got to have that chance to step back and look objectively at things. So things I do now to kind of give me more of that perspective. Um, yeah, I now, um, which I know is something kind of from your previous podcast, you know, I do make a lot more effort in terms of my health and keeping fit and so on, uh, which is something my wife's been banging on about for years. Um, so now it's a great gym in Ellsfield that I go to. And uh, uh, so that's, I don't know, it just makes you feel physically better about yourself. Physically, I think you can cope with more. You've got a bit more energy. Um, I try and sleep a lot better as well, actually. Um, that must be refreshing after probably what was your two or three hours in the beginning. Yeah, no, it is, it is. And it's, um, 
it's something that um, yeah, it's really important. I mentioned to you, kind of health-wise, I've got MS, multiple sclerosis. Right, okay. I'm, I'm very fortunate that um, my MS is mild. I actually had a, a stem cell transplant a couple of years ago, which is basically reboots your immune system. So MS is an autoimmune disease. So the yeah. idea is you kill your immune system and reboot it with a, a fresh immune system. So, And I'm very fortunate that at the moment, touch wood, my MS is kind of in check. Um, but uh, I do think that it's important for me particularly with MS, but generally, and for anybody generally, to kind of look after yourself. Um, so I do try and eat healthily. Um, I try and exercise regularly. Um, and I'm trying to sleep more. Um, again, it was something in the past that I used to often would kind of be up really early in the morning. It's a, a bad habit I think I got from my dad, actually. He, um, he works really, really hard and he's been very successful in what he's done. Um, but it's really important to be on your game and sometimes kind of getting up too early and having too many coffees in the day, um, it kind of makes my head go a bit fuzzy. So um, it, I think it's important to kind of have that balance um, and yeah, work really hard, but making sure you're kind of, you're on your game and you're focused when you are. So yeah, I'm trying to, trying to make sure I get a decent amount of sleep as well. Um, so you bring that stuff, I mean, is that also culturally now how people operate here? I mean, it comes across as a relatively flexible place. I take it it's all about the outcomes and the results. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And I think kind of when we started in the business, um, you can probably, when you've got that real startup buzz, you can actually demand a little bit more from your people. You know, I was, and I, I was, I was kind of quite a hard boss in the early days because I would actually come into the office, sit at my desk for 12 hours and just, I could happily not talk to anyone for 12 hours because that was my style of working. But I mean, I did, I did talk to people, but kind of I'd happily <laughs> lock myself in a room for 12 hours and, and work away, which is uh, is not the way, funnily enough, that most people like to work. So um, we've got, it's a pretty relaxed office environment, kind of the hours are, are pretty regular. Um, people, uh, I think they, they really enjoy working here because it's, um, the Mainly, actually, they're passionate about the products that we sell uh, and they're passionate about the business and the business story and they really feel like they're part of something. Um, and we, you know, we really try and have fun and it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice, friendly team environment, actually. Um, so, yeah, kind of proud, of proud of the team we've got. And, yeah, I do encourage that kind of So you've had to, as, you, as you're saying, you've had to change your style then as you've gone forward. You've had to yeah. what become more, that leadership piece has had to come more out of you. So you know, sitting at a desk for twelve yeah. hours, like you know, again, is yeah. a, particularly the innovator and that kind yeah. of um, creative—that's uh -huh. quite a usual trait. Yeah. But there's a piece where you have to be able to flex a bit to be able to engage your teams. Mm -hmm. how, how have you done that? Have you found that a challenge, or is it just something you deliberately said, "Listen, I need to become this person, and my identity needs to be this," so therefore I've had to make that happen. I think it became possible as the business um, became more sustainable and profitable and more successful, and that just we could then afford to get the people on board to be able to structure the business that I uh, was working more manageable hours and had a little bit more mental capacity not to be stressed out and not kind of just just fo just kind of blinkered and just focusing on kind of what was in front of me to be able to kind of stay, take that step back look at the bigger picture uh, and engage in some of the softer but very very important things within the business um, and make sure kind of all the team are really enjoying things as well. Did you ever think, was there ever a point where you thought it could fail? Um, the business, I mean. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, rather, rather than focusing on people. Rather, yeah, so. yeah, the, um, not really, actually. Um, not really, no. And again, that's not necessarily the right thing. Kind of, I do think kind of you need that, that objectivity and passion, you know, kind of with the Birch Muesli back in the early days, you know, maybe 
if something else hadn't come along, the right thing would have been to say, actually, you know what, this is not, this isn't working. Let's move on to something totally different. Um, but no, it's kind of, and that, that's that blend of kind of the stubbornness and passion about what you're doing, and that blend of that with the objectivity. But no, there's always been, um, no, I've always been really, I'm, all, I'm a glass half full person, and uh, yeah, I've always been super passionate and super kind of optimistic about what we can do. But that's been driven by the fact that there's always been genuinely this next thing that we could do that I've been really passionate about and kind of a next kind of adaptation and way we can drive the business. And that's kind of how we've grown over the last kind of 13 years from those stall in the train stations to now selling in these different retailers and what well, kind of most of the supermarkets in the UK and uh, and airlines and launching new products. So like I said, going going forward, the porridge will be a, a, a kind of a, the core bit of the business, but kind of profitable growth, but then looking at other areas that will be really high, exciting growth bits of the business. So looking into the dairy alternatives market, for example, which is something we'll be launching in a couple of milks, a couple of milks, a couple of weeks going into yeah. the oat milk space, yeah. Okay, yeah, because that's um, actually my, my thought <coughs> on it is, the people who are the most successful have a high degree of certainty and belief in what they're trying to do. So mm. in, in many cases, the fact that what you sort of said was, I didn't think I could fail really, or I wasn't gonna allow myself to do that is quite a, a strong trait. Yeah, because again, a lot of people there is no easy journey in this in this kind of no. start to scale up. But the thing no. that gets people through the most is mindset. And you touched a little bit on your your father and whatever else. How much of your mindset then has come from what you what you saw around the let's say the the dining room table when you were a kid? Yeah, a lot. I'd say I say um, both my my brothers are both uh, farmers and they've 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 been really successful in what they've done. They set up different ventures on the farms. One's kind of big into pigs. One's big into kind of poultry side of things. Um, so yeah, it was always quite an innovative entrepreneurial culture, you know, within the farm, kind of setting up different ventures in the farm. It was always a have a go at something culture, which it was, um, which I think is really important. Um, but also, uh, yeah, definitely kind of work ethic wise, um, kind of got a lot of that from my dad. Um, you know, he, he's always worked extremely hard. I'd, you know, I'd argue possibly too hard but you know it's, it's done him really well and he's, he's done some really interesting stuff as well off the back of it so yeah I think a huge amounts come from kind of family background um, and I think that makes a big difference about your perceived risk of being an entrepreneur and stepping out on your own as well you know for me it didn't seem a risk at all um, it just seemed like the, the natural course of what I was going to do whereas somebody whose parents have been in more vocational careers understandably it seems a lot bigger risk for them to kind of step out of that and go and set up their own business um yeah and kind of also people that have people that have done traditionally better in kind of the more traditional kind of forms of education will go into a job that maybe pays them more and for them it's more of a risk to then step into something entrepreneurial whereas people who perhaps haven't done so well in the um, the traditional education in this country, which I, I think there's a disconnect between education and success in kind of real life and in your career sometimes. Um, those guys have got, uh, guys and girls have got less to lose. So it's kind of more kind of setting up on your own and being an entrepreneur is more attractive, I think, to people um, who've perhaps um, conformed less to the kind of the traditional background. I, I never prescribe it as being it's the right pathway for everybody because everyone's got mm. different um, objectives but there's a really interesting thing if you've ever read um, <coughs> Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki fantastic okay, yeah. it's, it's one of the kind of books I recommend if people have never really understood about finances and investing there's a piece in that where they talk about the stages of kind of career and mission mm -hmm. and one of the things is you start as an employee then you become a manager 
then you might become an owner of something and then you might become an investor. And yeah. depending on your psychology mindset, all those things will depend where you stop. But what I've found, and this is not 100% true for everybody, but certainly what I've experienced in my own life and with people I, I've worked with, is that when people have crises, if you like, mm. when they're in a certain age, usually it's where they, they think that what they've got or where they've got, you know, where they've ended up <clears throat> is actually what they wanted, but it's not what they wanted. And they've realized that they, you know, there's a challenge between how they can get out of that mm. almost cycle. So what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, you've become an employee all your life, but you've never, you've always wanted to become more entrepreneurial. You've always wanted to own something. There's a pull that a lot of people, they have breakdowns because they're too scared to be able to take that step. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. and most people who I've, again, who I've interviewed on the podcast, have had influences, be that their family or mentors, that have helped them either go through that or naturally, as you described, they've they've kind of found a way of doing it. Yeah. So have you, have you, so other than your family, have you had people who have influenced and helped you along the journey? People who have been entrepreneurial, or has it just really been yourself? No, yeah, and I think that's really important. It's something I um, it kind of relates to the stubbornness a bit. I think kind of I was probably. Uh, not reluctant, but kind of too slow to kind of get advisors on board maybe in the early days. And I think it's for anybody kind of listening, kind of setting up your own business, I think it's really, really important to get some good advisors on board and to kind of network as much as you can, um, with, you know, within reason. Um, you don't want to spend your whole life going to networking events. Um, but, uh, but get some good advisors on board, people that have been there, who've done it, who can kind of lend the benefit of their experience. Um, we have kind of uh, one really good uh, guy, industry guy, who's um, who's been there, done it, uh, has some great experience, a guy called Andrew King. Um, so he's been great. Um, I make more of an effort now, which is one of the things kind of, uh, as well as sleeping and eating and exercising that I do more now is um, there's some good kind of entrepreneur networks I'm involved in. Um, and it's great to see people and just discuss the situation you're in, challenges you're having, and there's a, a subset within that, a, a tribe it's called. So there's there's five of us, no, eight, six of us that catch up quite frequently once a month and just kind of discuss the big issues that we're having in the businesses. Uh, and Is that life within the space of um, your sector, retail waste, or they're just entrepreneurs in any type of sector? Just... No, they're founders of businesses um, uh, in, in all sorts of different stuff. So Some are in the same space, some are in different spaces, um, but it's kind of a chance to... Uh, with a kind of a super com- ag- agreement that is super confidential to kind of be able to talk to people about anything you want, kind of issues you've got with a business partner, with uh, your team, kind of where you want to go in your life, in the direction of your business. So I do think having those people to talk to is really important. Um, you know, and my wife as well, actually, kind of, I talk to her a lot about business, <laughs> I mean, too much really, um, but uh getting her perspective on things is really important. And getting those those family members and the people that are close to you can see what's important for you as an individual, not just, because it isn't always the same as what's important for the business. I guess kind of if the business is, the business should work for the owner of the business, but um, uh, they're not always the, the same thing in terms of kind of what's going to be good for the individual versus what's good for the business. So um, yeah, I, I find it really helpful to kind of get people's opinion and um, you know make sure I, you don't always take it on, you don't always action it, but it's really helpful to kind of take it on board and listen to it and then kind of make your mind up about what to do. Well, we were touching on this before we actually started recording where we, sometimes the, the stuff we talk before recording is always more as interesting <laughs> as what you talk about, but with the, the whole idea of having a peer group of people who are either on the same path, not necessarily the same industry, but on the mm. same path that you can learn from um, and just feeling like you've got that environment to be able to share things and learn from is massive. In fact, most, again, without being too kind of blanket 
um, about it. Most people who don't have that find it very challenging because it can be a pretty lonely place you know, being a founder, if you haven't got that around you. Yeah, and I think it's about finding the right groups. Now, I've been involved in big groups, which I personally find trickier because it's a lot, you know, I'm, I'd say I'm probably more introverted than extroverted and uh, you get a lot of big personalities and it's sometimes it's quite hard to kind of yeah, gel. I and you, you, <laughs> I know the type, I can yeah. picture as you're talking. Um, <clears throat> and you don't quite feel at home and you almost feel like kind of, uh, you know, everyone's doing bigger and better things, which of course they aren't, but they're kind of, it seems like that. Um, whereas for me, kind of that small group of people, kind of half a dozen people, works really well, and you can all get to know each other really well. And um, you know, after a couple of sessions, and everyone's kind of got the trust that they can kind of expose their weaknesses and vulnerabilities to people. And you're sitting with some really capable people and inspiring people. And it's um, equally, you realise that to them, you're also really capable and inspiring, and uh, and you all help each other. So it's um, yeah, it's definitely helpful. Um, to have that that input from other people, whether it's people that know the industry really well who can advise you, whether it's personal confidants, like kind of family members, or whether it's like this this business group who kind of general business skills, but where you can really, you know, talk about um, about serious concerns you've got, kind of whether, you know, personally or professionally. Um, So yeah, that, that definitely helps, yeah. Good. Well, listen, you've been very gracious with your time. I'm conscious of that. So there's a couple of questions. I always ask these questions yeah. at the end. Are you ready for it? Yeah, right away. <laughs> they come across a bit dry, but actually the answers are always quite interesting. So first question is, what's the best piece of advice you've had when sort of scaling your business over the last few years? Tell, you can say who gave it to you or just, just share something that you thought, actually, that really made a difference. The best bit of advice about scaling business. So the so I've heard this from various different people, but it's kind of it's, it's been really, really key in our business, uh, and it's it's not new news to people. But getting the right team around you is really, really important. Um, there's only so much you can do. Try and get people that are better in their roles than mm-hmm. you are, um, and yeah, get people that are passionate about the business and share that passion for what you're doing. Um, so yeah, getting the right team on. Without the right team, it's it's impossible to grow, and you'll always kind of be doing everything yourself. So kind of to release those shackles a little bit and make sure you've got that headspace to look at the bigger picture. It's it's incredibly important to get those Good. around. No, that's you. a great one. It's also the secret of scale up because most people actually think that you know the point, the pivot between two people in a room versus 10, 12 people or more in a room. Yeah, you have to change, and yes. that's where most people kind of struggle. Okay, so that's the best piece. What's the worst piece of advice you've given? Something that you, you may not have taken the advice, but you thought at the time. God, you know, that's that was terrible. <laughs> Worst piece of advice I've been given. Um, let me think. The well, I don't know so I don't know if this is a piece, it wasn't necessarily a piece of advice I've been given, but one thing I would always say to other people uh, in terms of trying to give them advice of stuff they shouldn't do, um, is is make sure you if you're launching a new product, um, particularly in my sector, which is the food sector, kind of make sure you've got your products sorted before you go to market. Um, you know, we were still developing our product kind of seven years into launching the business. And so I'd always say to people who've got are really passionate about this new idea and it's going to be the next big thing on the market, um, I say to them, look, kind of get, get the product sorted before you go to market. So, um, so yeah, the, the converse of that is I would, I would caution against people just launching something straight away. You know, I, I would, it's worth putting the time in to test something to make sure it's a viable, make sure people will buy it, make sure you can get, uh, in my industry, the manufacturer to produce it, or you can produce it yourself and actually it stacks up and makes a decent gross margin for you. So you do quite a bit of almost diligence work before launching, as opposed to just kind of, because some people say start now, get perfect later, just kind of get it out there and, and almost iterate. But I suppose in your industry, that must be difficult because you don't want to, there's, there's a, a scale thing here by the certain critical mass, you don't want to make a mistake on that. 
I think it depends a little bit on the industry as well. So kind of in kind of tech space, in kind of launching a minimal viable product kind of yeah. makes sense. Um, and you're kind of you're selling it to a limited audience and that's your best way to not invest a huge amount of time and capital up front and then to be able to iterate on it and improve it. I think when you're launching something, um, and it, there's a balance to be had here. So I'm not saying you've got to get the perfect end product, but I'm saying kind of going out with a MVP when you're selling into supermarkets is probably not the right strategy. Actually, in this sector, when all of a sudden something's out there, you've got a listing, you might be in 500 supermarkets, you, yeah, I can you, imagine. Don't, you don't necessarily get a, a second bite at the cherry on that. I was so, going to say, you don't want to make a mistake in there when there's, I mean, if something doesn't work well, you know, it gets, there must be massive competition just for that space and to be able to have those yeah, relationships. Yeah, look, there's always, always room to improve, but you want to get something to kind of, I would say, in, in, my, in my industry, to get something to kind of 80% of where you think it can get to before you would want to launch it onto the market. Um, yeah, interesting. That's otherwise, good, you, can good then, you can, you're then kind of going down a track which is, quite hard to retract from and you might have spent a lot of money on it as well. I think it's that's a big difference between kind of producing a physical product and um, kind of a tech based business. Yeah, interesting. Good. Okay, well, last question for you. So and we've touched a little bit, I think on this, but this is more about mission. So if there was, you know, you've obviously you've done lots of different things with with this business. But if there was one thing that you could do in terms of that you think could change the world around what you're doing, do you have a bigger vision around that? We talked about you know, the importance of energy and breakfast and all that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is there a bigger thing here behind all that? Um, well, I'll go back to the thing on energy and breakfast, actually. It's um, having a decent breakfast in the morning. It sounds quite trite, but it kind of really, really makes a difference to people's days. Um, what we do uh, in a relatively small way, but we kind of have on the inside of our packs, you know, if you want some breakfast for your local primary school, get in touch. We now supply about a dozen different primary schools with oh, breakfast wow, fantastic. around the country. So you, you um, donate that, basically. Yeah, That's we donate, we donate that, that breakfast. Yeah, so um, and I think it's super important for kids to kind of get a decent breakfast in the morning because um, it helps them with learning. You know, it means that they get more out of their school day. You know, all this effort goes into education. Kind of, if you've not got the fuel in your body to learn properly, um, you won't enjoy the day. You won't be engaged. We've had we've had emails back from schools saying. One child was almost mute. You know, they just didn't talk at all, and they've really come out of themselves oh, because wow. they're getting a decent breakfast in the morning. So, little things like that make a difference. And you know, that really comes back to why we set the business up. You know, kind of got to remember. You know, we're in the food industry. We're trying to give people good quality food. That's really making a difference to to people's lives. You know, kind of. I don't want to overcook it. You know, um, but it's um, excuse the pun. But it's uh, <laughs> no, but, we get it. We but, get it. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get give people really good quality food products and enable them to kind of get more out of their life and kind of at the very basic level with breakfast kind of getting oats and good porridge in you in the morning makes a big difference and that's kind of really encapsulated by I think kind of breakfast clubs and children getting decent breakfast in the morning. Oh, we, we talked about it previously my four-year-old loves your stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, no, yeah she loved that yeah. stuff before no. we even met so you yeah, know. No, I'm always chuffed when I meet somebody who knows the brand and buys it and really likes we've it. Certainly, yeah. We've certainly had some of these, these um, porridge pots in our house I can tell yeah. you that and, yeah. um, and well, they, if I have them um, my daughter gets really upset so yeah. there you go. Well, I'll, give you, I'll give you some to take away. You know? <laughs> very good. Okay well, listen thanks very much Tom for your time. Um, um, I think there's a whole heap of stuff in what we've spoken about today, which people will get a heap out of. It's always funny when you have the conversation, you probably don't see it, but I'm, I'm listening the whole time and I can hear some of the nuggets, which um, I will summarize, I think, for people on in the intro as well. Um, and as I always finish, I always say, be grateful, be brave, have faith and show up. So thank you very much. Thanks very much, Nick.